All right, we're going to continue this morning in our uh, series. Uh, If you have a Bible, you're going to want to open it up to the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We've been taking this month um, and a little bit of this month that just began uh, to look at the supernatural aspects of the Christian life, to spend some time reflecting on the reality that God is there, that his word is true, okay, and trying to take seriously the unseen and powerful realities beyond just the flesh and blood and human and circumstances and these types of things. So we've talked about prayer. As I mentioned, next week we'll talk about the spiritual gifts and the role of the Spirit in empowering us to serve one another. Um, But last week and this week, we've been focusing on a category um, that we identify as spiritual warfare. Okay, And so last Sunday, we looked at the reality of our spiritual enemy, that there really is a personal force in the universe that seeks to do you harm, that, uh, that seeks to destroy lives, that is actively involved. And we saw that he had three primary weapons, temptation, accusation, and deception. Temptation, accusation, and deception. What we want to do this morning is look at what we have, what resources we have available to resist the influence and power of the devil. And so that's what brings us to Ephesians chapter 6. Let's read it and pray, and then we will talk more deeply. Picking up here in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's pray. God, we saw last week that according to your word, according to the scriptures, you do not want us to be ignorant of the devices of the devil. In the same way, Lord, you do not want us to be ignorant of the resources we have to withstand, to resist, to take back ground, Lord, to, uh, to wage spiritual warfare. And so I ask, God, that you would equip us this morning, that you would familiarize us with these resources. 
and that our knowledge of these things would not just be informational, Lord, um, but that we would learn how to engage in these things regularly and consistently in a way that helps us stand. And we recognize, Lord, this morning, first and foremost, that this is something that you have made available, that we cannot stand in our own strength or in our own power, but as Paul says here, that we are to stand in the strength of your might. So we pray that you would instruct us in that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, since I was a teenager, I've been into vampire films. I just am. It's just one of those things. Like, I couldn't give you solid reasons. There's lots of movies that I would say I'd like that you'd go, really? Uh, but it's just something I like. And one of the things that always happens in vampire films is there's a point where the hero opens up his bag, right? And in the bag, there is the crucifix, there is the wooden stake, there is the silver nitrate, you know, soaked bullets, whatever's involved, right? There's the tools of the trade, okay? And, and maybe, maybe your thing is exorcism movies, and you know they also have a bag, right? Anytime we go anywhere, there's always the question of if there's a fight... What are you armed with? Okay, and it doesn't matter if it's fists of fury or, uh, you know, um, laser-guided sharks. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the question is, what equipment do you have? And there's a significance in recognizing a couple of things as we look at the passage this morning. Um, first is, Paul chooses military imagery. Okay, he doesn't choose tanks and and warplanes, obviously. He chooses the standard armor of a Roman centurion, um, but nonetheless, he clearly wants to engage a sense of combat. And not just for soldiers, but for everyone. In fact, the word he uses here for the actual action of combat is translated in your Bible as wrestle, and that's exactly where it comes from in the Greek. It's a grappling term. Okay? This is a very intimate and intense hands-on fight is the way that it's pictured. And so these combat images are used here uh, in a way that should trigger a sense of seriousness and urgency. Okay. This is not just uh, you know, a battle of words and flinging of insults. This, this is high stakes. Okay. In fact, the New Testament is filled with this type of warfare or combat language and as we've seen, behind that is the fact that there is a rebellious entity opposed to God and his kingdom and proactively seeking to fight it, destroy it, overturn it. Okay. And so if you weren't with us last week, I'd encourage you to listen to the message because we have to understand both the tactics of our enemy and the resources that are available to resist those tactics. Okay. Now what's interesting is although the imagery here is, uh, is of physical combat, uh, combat, unlike vampire movies and exorcism movies, the resources we have are not physical. Right? There's not a reference here to, um, to implements of any sort. You know? And there's so many I left off the list. Holy water, etc., Right? Instead, what we have are spiritual resources, and there's a very good reason for that. Okay? 
Look at what it says again in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Bingo. Okay. Right? We need spiritual resources because we have a spiritual enemy. But Paul means more than just trying to define his terms here. When he says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, what he's recognizing is you, on the other hand, are flesh and blood. Okay. What he's recognizing here is in and of yourself, all natural, if you will, you are ill-equipped for this fight. We talked about this a little bit last week. There's one thing, the resisting temptation, if temptation is just something that exists in your body. But if there's a tempter, that puts it in another category. There's one thing between being able to discern your own thoughts and what is true and false. But if there's a deceiver, right, it changes the conversation. And so notice here, this is spiritual resources for a spiritual war. But notice the intensity again in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against... And then he could just say the spiritual realm, but he doesn't. He stacks terms of intense power and even authority, listen to them, against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It doesn't really matter which word you choose to focus on. Every one of them is above your pay grade, right? How many rulers do we have here this morning? Okay, authorities. How about cosmic powers over this present darkness? Anyone in attendance, right? They are high-level expressions of power and authority, okay? Now, with that in mind, at the same time, Paul manifests a tremendous confidence that you have everything you need for this fight, right? Paul here isn't a general pacing back and forth and saying, we are outmatched and outgunned, but we're going to give a hell of a fight. That's not what he says. He says, Stand. You will stand. James says the same thing. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Right? That's not even chase the devil and he will run from you. It's just stand your ground and the devil will give up. Right? That's the language. Why is that the case? Listen again to verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. In fact, more than that, look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of who? Of God. It's not even your armor. You're borrowing it. Okay. In fact, Paul seems to have taken this idea, not just from the Roman soldiers that were everywhere in Rome, and what he saw out there and went, hmm, this could be a good illustration, but also from the book of Isaiah. See, in Isaiah chapter 59, God is bemoaning the injustice and the devastation of his own people. And what happens in Isaiah 59 is God's representative himself, the Messiah, arms himself for battle. And if you go and read the passage, it's, it's the same language used here. Okay? In fact, some of the implements are the exact same imagery. Okay? And so, effectively, when it says here the armor of God, we could also read it as the armor of Jesus. But this is what I'm trying to suggest to you, and it's very important that you get this. Okay? The reason that we can stand 
is because Jesus overcame. And when it talks about the armor here, and we'll, we'll review it item by item, and you'll see this, the power of our ability to resist, our victory is entirely and completely in what Jesus has already done. When we read about the armor here, it is not telling you about good habits and behavior that will make you stronger. Paul doesn't give us here a regimen of personal strength. What is, uh, is extrapolated here, what is laid out for us here, is basically a review of who Jesus is and what he has done. Okay. And I can show you this even from Ephesians. Remember we saw here the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. Go back with me to chapter 1. Now, at the end of chapter 1 here, Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know what they have available to them in Christ. And he lists a couple of different things, but I just want to pick up in verse 9. He wants them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. Now, listen to this. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put them all under his feet and gave him as head over all things to us, the church. Just a few paragraphs later, Paul goes back to those powers and principalities in the heavenly places and tells us to put on the armor of God. But effectively, that armor is recognizing that we are in the heavenly places. Okay. In fact, notice what he says back in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. Okay. But notice here that Paul's prayer in verse 19 of chapter 1 is not just about what God has done in Jesus, but what God is doing in us just as he'd done in Jesus. Look again at verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ? Do you see the relationship there? It is the same power. And Christ here doesn't just operate as an example of that power, but as a conduit. In other words, there's a direct relationship between spiritual war war warfare and growing in Jesus. There's a direct relationship between resisting the devil and establishing your identity in Christ. They go together. And I think that's one of the reasons why Paul uses the language, even though he lays out armor of combat and there's a sword, he doesn't talk here about conquering, but standing. In fact, there's a really interesting progression in the book of Ephesians as a whole. As we saw in Ephesians 1, just at a glance, we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. And if you go back and you look, you'll see that idea of being seated in the heavenly places in Christ in chapter 1. You'll see it recur again in chapter 2. It shows up in chapter 3. And then chapter 4 opens this way. Therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of a manner in which you were called. Sit and then walk 
And that word suddenly becomes the driving physical metaphor. So we're to walk in wisdom. We're to walk in love. We're to walk circumspectly. We're to walk in the light. All of those are in chapter 4. And then he gets to chapter 6 and he says, finally, stand. And listen to how often he uses this language. Let's hit it again in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then pick up in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Okay. And then what does he say? Stand, therefore. Okay. In other words, he says, you have everything you need to withstand, so stand. Now, again, Paul doesn't just stop there and give us just a generic idea and say, hey, God's got it taken care of, just trust in him. He wants us to put on the armor, right? In fact, one of the things that's really interesting about this passage is that there's a tension here between passivity and activity. There's a tension between what God has done and God is doing and us just trusting in that and what we do, okay? It's, it's amazing to see how interwoven uh, it is, but it's summed up, I think, in verse 10 again by being strong in the Lord. I don't know if you know this grammatically, but when you see the being verb before a verb that's being used as a noun, it makes it passive, okay? When you are being strong, that's not something you are doing, it's something you are. And when you add, be strong in the Lord, that means that there's this added layer of not on your own, not by yourself, but empowered, okay? And if you look at all of this, uh, in fact, notice um, a good illustration of this in verse um, 17. It says, take the helmet of salvation, okay? Uh, The word there in the Greek is usually translated receive. And and in English, we make a big distinction between receiving and taking. Receiving is somebody else is handing you something, okay? Taking is you're reaching out and grabbing something, right? And you can take something from somebody who's giving something. That's fine. And that's why it's translated take here. But the word has this idea of of open hands, okay? But receiving is active. You know, when I try and hand my child something and they don't grab it, it falls to the floor. They have not received it without help, okay? Without them doing part of it. So... Clearly, what Paul wants us to do is to be familiar with these things and employ them. Okay. In other words, he's saying, look, you have everything you need, you just need to use it. And again, what is striking about this passage as we review it is that the items on this list are not for the upper echelon super Christians. They're not things that are inaccessible or outreaching. They're not things that you need to be pre-qualified or well-trained in. You don't have to go get licensed for the armor of God. Okay. In fact, the things that you review here are so simple, we can distrust them. We can go, this can't possibly be enough. Maybe this is fine for low-level encounters with small lives, but what about the big stuff? But there isn't a gradiated list of engagement. All right, if you face this, this will be plenty, but here's where you need the nuclear option. No. This is it. 
And let's review what it is. Look at where he starts in verse 14. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, one of the things we're not going to do this morning is spend a lot of time thinking about why this is a belt and why it's not the helmet of truth. Okay. Um, outside of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, I'm not sure how much energy we should put in trying to wrap our head around how treat, truth helps us gird up our loins so we can move about freely. I don't really think that's the point. And one of the reasons I don't think it's the point is because the imagery is the same in Isaiah, but the words are different and in different order. But the point is, you need the truth. And the point is that the truth is sufficient against the tactics of the devil. And that shouldn't surprise us, because what did we see last week? That one of the primary tools of the devil is deception. The devil is a liar, it says in John chapter 5, and he lies out of his own nature because he is the father of lies. Okay? Deception is his way of being. And so we need to spend time both getting to know the truth, because there's two types of engagement with truth. One we would label ignorance. I don't know the truth because I've never known the truth. The other is deception. I don't know the truth because I've begun believing a lie. Okay. The answer is the same. They both just need a more thorough revisiting of the truth. But there is the possibility that you have not yet learned the truth, and then there is the possibility that you've rejected the truth. And they're different. Okay. But when he says here that we need the truth, what he's suggesting is two things. Okay? One, you need to learn the truth. You need to learn. You need to know what these every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are that Christ Jesus has for you. You need to know who Jesus is, who he proclaimed himself to be, and who he proclaims you to be in what he's done in your life. You need to know what has been taken care of and what will be taken care of. You need to know the promises of God. You need to know the truth. Okay. And so one of the ways that you preemptively engage well in spiritual warfare is to learn. And what it doesn't say here is that you need information. Okay? And so what I'm not suggesting is that you pick up a copy of Moby Dick because it's a classic and maybe thumb your way through one of the big, uh, you know, um, uh, well, Wikipedia and just read all of Wikipedia and you'll be prepared. Right? Remember, especially in the New Testament, the truth has a name and his name is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? Um, and so that being said, reading the scriptures, studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures is boot camp. Yeah. It's preparatory. Mm -hmm. It's not an additional. It's not a beneficial. It's not for those who have the time. It is essential for your well-being. And again, that's because we're not talking about a neutral and optional reality. We're talking about you being dropped in the middle of a battlefield. You need the truth. Now, I just, I just want to make one really significant suggestion. To be able to learn, to receive, to know the truth, you have to be able to receive it no matter what. 
you want to know what the primary gate to truth is? It's your will. It's your heart. You think it's your mind? You know better than that. You know our, our nation is divided in severe ways on every issue, and there's lots of them where you go, I don't know how that person could possibly believe that thing. I promise you, if you trace the conduit from that idea all the way to their brain, it will go through their own desires somewhere. They're not dumber than you. And when you look back on your own choices, do you do the wrong thing because you don't know better? No, you know better and you push through it. But the scary thing is, if you conform the truth to your will long enough, then you just deceive yourself. And nobody is easier to deceive than a self-deceived person. So you have to not sit above the scriptures and say, I'm going to pick and choose. I'm going to select what's right for me. I'm going to find my own truth in myself. The heart is wicked and desperate, desperately confusing, Jeremiah says. Who can understand it? You have to have a metric. And you have to surrender to it at all costs. So you need the belt of truth, but it doesn't stop there. He continues on and he says, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now again, this is a place where it gets really important to ask the question, who's righteousness? When we put on this breastplate, does that mean the best thing you can do to resist the devil is be a good person? I think there is a sense where that's true, and I'll come back to that in just a second. But ultimately, and, and, and to begin with here, and if we just read it in its context of Ephesians, this righteousness is not mere ethical righteousness. Okay? Like, uh, you know, um, like if I just do a bunch of good deeds, then I won't be subject to danger. The breastplate of righteousness here is what Martin Luther called alien righteousness. It's external. It's somebody else's breastplate. And again, this makes sense. Because the devil is not just a deceiver, which we combat with the truth. As we talked about, he's also an accuser. And the choice that you make here, in your preparation and your response, is the choice between putting on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness and saying, no, I am righteous in Christ. He lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. And God now sees me through that. Or... Dressing yourself in what Isaiah calls filthy rags, your own righteousness, which cannot defend you. Okay. And what will happen is, if the devil doesn't succeed in condemning you, he will push you directly into pride, and he's quite content with that. The righteousness here is first and foremost a received righteousness, a righteousness that comes by faith, like we saw in Galatians last week. A righteousness that is given as a free gift in Jesus to all who trust in him. And that is sufficient to resist. Because what does it say in Romans chapter 8? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you don't need to pull up your resume when you're under spiritual attack and say, but I did this and I do that and I do these other things. You just plead the blood of Christ. You say, that's all true. And more so, but I am forgiven and righteous in Christ. And you have no authority over me. However, it is very clear here that like we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, 
This is not just entering into what Christ has done, but imitating it as well. That's why Ephesians 5 opens up with an exhortation to imitate Christ. Okay? And the truth is, if you appeal to Christ's righteousness, and if you know the truth, then you're also going to pursue living like Christ. There is a participatory element in this, not just in applying the righteousness of Christ, but also following suit in that righteousness. And all you have to do, again, is read Ephesians to see that this shows up as well. Okay. But if you build the second without the first, then your righteousness has no foundation, no security, no perfection. There's chinks in the armor, and you leave yourself vulnerable to attack. So you have to start there. So we have truth, we have righteousness, and then look at verse 15. And choose for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now you might have a different translation this morning. Notice that the ESV reads this as something about the gospel of peace has made us ready. Some of your translations will say, and your shoes which are the preparation to proclaim the gospel of peace. Do you see the difference here? One is suggesting that what you need to do is be ready to share the gospel. The other is saying that the gospel has made you ready. Okay. And grammatically, they're both possible. However, again, I would suggest that the armor here is not about what you do, but what Christ has done. And so, for example, notice what it says here back in Ephesians chapter 2. We're talking about peace, right? If we want to cross-reference in the book of Ephesians to understand peace then we should go to verse, uh, verse 14. Speaking of Jesus here and what he's done, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and notice this in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility. And most importantly, verse 17, and he came, Jesus, and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. Okay. It is good to be a proclaimer of the gospel as long as you are first and primarily a recipient of it. The peace that's being talked about here in the armor of God, the shoes that you need, is the fact that you have been readied for war by peace. Doesn't that seem strange? But see, here's the thing. You used to play for the other team. You used to be part of the other kingdom. You used to not be standing with God, but against him. And so when it says here that Jesus came and proclaimed peace, effectively God ended the war, the hostility, the enmity between you and him. Okay, and again, this is significant. Because the devil is like a devoted military recruiter trying to get you to sign up again for another tour. And what he's going to do is he's going to reveal or he's going to review your your, you know, your combat record and he's going to say, "Look, you're clearly one of my guys." In fact, one of the things that often drives us into deep circles of sin is the futility of feeling like God is against us. It's a sense that he's not present, that he's not active, that he's not pleased with us. And a lot of sin just 
comes out of despair. But if you know that peace has been proclaimed, that God is no longer your opposition, then you're ready for war, ready for another war, ready to resist the war that looks like someone who's on your side, but is actually, actually the enemy. Let's pause there for just a second. Recognize this, that if this morning you are in a place where you feel like there is no way that God can be pleased with you, that he is pervasively and consistently angry at you, and until you rectify that, he is opposed to you. Not only is that not true in Jesus Christ, but it's also a root issue that is leaving you vulnerable in so many other places. Shod yourself with the shoes of the proclamation of peace from the one who made peace and the one who is peace. Therefore, Romans chapter 5 says, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace with God. When Jesus was in the garden, he said, Father, this cup, please let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is that cup? Again, Jesus, like Paul here in Ephesians 6, is drawing from the book of Isaiah. And the cup is the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of his judgment. Jesus knows he's going to endure betrayal and physical suffering and death. That's not where his concern is. He's going to experience the full reality of God's wrath and judgment. And he says, let that cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know what that implies? It implies that he went on and he drank the cup. And when he drank that cup of God's wrath, he drank it to the dregs, to the very bottom of the cup. There's not a drip, not a drop left for you. It's finished. No more war. Only peace. But even there, Paul doesn't stop. He goes on and he says in verse 16, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now notice this is the first time where we're given any sort of imagery for the attack of the enemy. And it's identified here as flaming darts. And I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I think of those lawn darts from the 90s that were super dangerous, but now they're on fire. But the idea here is better understood like arrows. Okay? And in, in those times of war, because shields were made of wood, you light arrows on fire, and that causes your shield to now be dangerous. Right? Okay? And so they had ways of dealing with this. They would soak their, they would soak their shields in water so it would repel this. Um, but, but here it talks about the flaming darts of the evil one. And it's worth pausing for a second and saying, what is he talking about? We've already talked about tactics like deception and condemnation. But those are propaganda tactics, right? Those are flyers dropping out of the B-52 to discourage you in the war, right? That's misinformation and spy tactics, right? But flaming darts, that is direct and open attack. I would suggest to you that what this is talking about is recognizing the reality that although we fight a spiritual enemy, 
he does impact the physical world. I would suggest to you, if you want a biblical example of the flaming darts of the enemy, all you have to do is open the book of Job. And what are those darts? It's death and disease and destruction. And Paul seems to say the same thing about his wrestling with the devil in 2 Corinthians. He says that the devil had been buffeting his body, beating him up. Okay? And he's clearly talking there not about a spiritual problem, but a physical one. And when we read the Gospels, do we see demonic activity that is involved in the physical realm? Yes. And not just in the foaming at the mouth demonized, but the woman who's been bent over, her spine twisted for 20 years because of bondage to the devil. We see physical realm reality. But interestingly here, what is given to us is not a way to stop the darts from coming, but to extinguish the flame. In other words, Paul doesn't tell us how to stop the devil's attacks, but how to survive them. And that's what we see with Paul. He prays three times that this thorn in the flesh would be taken away, and God says no. He says, my strength is sufficient for you, for my grace is perfected in weakness. Notice what we're talking about here. What is the shield that extinguishes these flaming darts? It's faith. Faith is, again, what we see in Job who in the midst of all these things falls on his face and he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That trust the goodness and sovereignty of God in all circumstances. That's what faith is. Faith doesn't hinder awful things from happening in your life, but it does hinder them from severing your relationship with God. Faith doesn't stop disease or destruction or or loss of profits, or all of these things, but faith changes the way you navigate those things. It knows that, um, you know, when we talk about this war, we're not talking about two equally powerful, diametrically opposed forces. We're talking about the all-powerful, sovereign God, who so significantly is in control of the battle, took the greatest victory of the devil, and made it his greatest victory. Satan killed the Son of God in the flesh who came to save man, finally putting to the end this whole Messiah business. But that was the act that destroyed the devil. That's where the serpent bit the heel, but it's also where the Messiah crushed the head. If he is capable of turning the greatest act, not just of human wickedness, but spiritual evil ever committed into what we call the gospel, You can trust him with the things you face in your own life. It doesn't mean you're not going to be wounded. But there's healing, and the healing goes deeper than the wound. So we have the shield of faith here, and then it says, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is almost bundling together everything we've talked about and put it together. One of the best answers you can give when you talk back to the devil is, I'm saved. That's that's clearly the idea here. And although I told you I wasn't going to stress the different parts, I do think the helmet is given significance here because you can take a bullet in the arm. You can't survive one in the head. The, The helmet is necessary and it is central 
It is the most important part. It protects your vital organs. Okay? And so the helmet of salvation. If you're not a Christian this morning, I have no idea what you think of demonic activity or anything I've said this morning. But I just want you to recognize that if what I'm saying is true, and you haven't received Jesus yet, you are just plain vulnerable. The devil's authority is limited, as is his power. But John tells us in 1 John that the whole world is under his sway. In fact, listen to what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you, speaking of all of us before Jesus, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following who? The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So Paul here paints a world that's not just under the power of the devil, but inspired by it, filled with it. But that's not something you need to solve on your own. That is what God has done in Jesus Christ. He did not just triumph over your sins. He triumphed over the devil. Read Colossians. So salvation is available in him. Salvation from sin, from death, from hell, and from the devil. Let's continue here. Chapter 6. Not only do we need the shield, but alongside the shield we also need the sword. And so verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay. And again, without overstressing the imagery, it's interesting here that the word of God is the only one that's labeled as an offensive one. Okay. Everything else just protects you, but the sword is, is combat in its truest sense. It's metal on metal activity. You know, It is something you don't just wear, but something you swing. But more interesting than that, the word here Paul uses in the Greek is not the word that's often translated the word of God. Okay? That word is logos. Okay? This word is rhema. And sometimes these words are entirely synonymous. Okay? They can be used back and forth. We do this in language all the time. But when there is a distinction to be made, rhema focuses on the spoken word. And so this is the word, and this is the word, and usually this is rhema. And again, I think that's intentional here because we've already talked about the truth and you need to be familiar with the sword of the spirit, but to wield it, you need to articulate it. It needs to be not just in your mind, but in your mouth. Okay. And you might think, well, you're playing with this quite a lot. You're drawing out more than I think is necessary, but isn't that what we learned from Jesus? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, how does he respond to that temptation? He speaks and he speaks the word of God. He says, it is written. And it was written before Jesus says it, but he says it. Okay. And so the idea here, again, is that you need to not just know the truth and remember it, you need to employ it. Amen. A sword here is not something you just put on the mantelpiece to remember your history, or, you know, or, or some sort of, to modernize it, a gun that you keep under your bed. You are to be armed and active in the use of it. And one of the things that I would suggest is when you start to recognize propensities, weaknesses, chinks in the armor, places where the devil seems to get you, find the truth of Scripture that combats those lies or that condemnation 
or like Jesus, it is written, resist that temptation and memorize it. And when you need to, proclaim it. The idea here is that you can resist the devil with the word of God. And that's what Jesus does, right? What we find in the opening chapters of Matthew is not a physical wrestling match in the wilderness. What we find is not an engaging of wills and and Jesus swinging to one side. What we find is a line drawn in the sand between two ways of being and Jesus drawing uh, his own line with it is written and resisting. So we need that sword of the Spirit. Now, that covers all of the armor as it's named. And I just, I just want to reiterate one more thing. That this is sufficient for spiritual warfare. And this is the same thing we engage in our own lives personally when we're resisting the devil. And it's the same thing we engage in when we're doing kingdom work. When you proclaim the gospel and invite people to enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, these are the truths. These are the same things that you review. They're the same things you engage with. When we tear down strongholds, like it says in 2 Corinthians, and change not just the powers and principalities in the heavenly places, but the way that they've empowered the systems of being and thinking that in our world, this is how we do it. When we deal with the demonized, and we confront embodiments of demons that seem to have full control, you don't need some sort of upper echelon, you need this. Because again, Jesus has already conquered, triumphed, and been put in the heavenly places above all powers and authorities. Now again, I know there are other systems of engaging in these things. And my biggest concern with them is that they rely on things that we find that are extra-biblical, beyond the scriptures. What we see here is either sufficient or it's not. But Paul says, having done all, which is to put these things on, stand therefore. There's one more that I wanted to mention because verse 18 opens with a participle. When we're reading our Bibles in English, you can usually spot the participles because they end in ing. It's not always the case. But participles aren't main verbs in a sentence. They're modifying verbs. Okay? And so praying at all times in the spirit is not a new thing. It's a descriptive thing about what we've already been talking about. And what I would suggest to you is it's a participle here after taking and receiving, which are imperatives, because there's a relationship between praying and taking and receiving. What I would suggest to you that in the same way that knowing the truth is essential here, prayer is essential to putting on the armor. In fact, again, if I want just an example, there's an occasion where Jesus' disciples are facing off, again, with a demonic manifestation in a child. And Jesus walks down the mountain, takes care of it instantly. And his disciples go, why did we have so much trouble? And he says, this kind only comes out by prayer. Prayer is a significant part here. Not because prayer is some sort of powerful reality in and of itself, but because prayer is communion with the living God. In fact, will you just notice um, that what we see in verse 18 is almost atmospheric? Listen, praying uh, at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's not a lot he left off the table there, right? When should you pray? All the time. Who should you pray for? Everybody. How should you pray? At always, you know, with all alertness. 
Prayer here is an atmosphere of combat. It's a constant recognition. You cannot take out the armor on loan and run your own independent excursion. Right? The idea is here of one of God's present working, not just what he did in Jesus and now you imitate, but engaging with and partnering with and experiencing the reality. And there's another relationship here. Not only is spiritual warfare something we do with the Lord, and that requires prayer. It says in the spirit, right? And that's the presence of God. But notice also it says um, that we are making supplication for all the saints. You have two options at this point. Either Paul says resist the devil and also pray for other people. Or there's a correlation between resist the devil and pray for other people. One of the things that you need to remember is that this isn't an army of one. Okay. And one of the ways that we engage in spiritual warfare effectively is through praying for one another. Okay. And again, I would suggest to you that this is an essential component of spiritual warfare that we even see in the ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus does what the demonized cannot do on their own. Right? He delivers them. And I think deliverance is an okay word when we're talking about the demonic realm. And that requires partnership. It requires participation. And so prayer here is a way that not only do we engage in spiritual warfare for ourselves, but we do it for those sitting next to us. We do it for those who are at great distances and struggling. Sometimes our prayer is reduced down to dealing with physical needs. But if you read the New Testament, you'll be amazed how much Paul talks about the devil and his activity in his churches that he planted. And he clearly prays in that context. But again, that prayer is, is not some sort of um, strategic praying down the enemy. If you read the book of Daniel, Daniel, you'll see a relationship between prayer and spiritual warfare. But it's clearly not that Daniel's prayers are causing the battle to go well in heaven. It's the other way around. The battle in heaven is happening because of Daniel's prayer, right? He's, he's praying, and then there's this fight in heaven until the angel can come and get him. But we've got to watch out for this thing of identifying, you know, these strongholds and praying them down by name. Again, it's just beyond scripture. Instead, we proclaim the truth. We preach the kingdom. We manifest its power and demonstrate its love. But we do pray. And we pray for one another. Now, when we look over this list again, it's pretty close to the basics. If you've been a Christian for very long, the ideas of Christ's righteousness, that Jesus saves, that we need the truth, that faith is how we please God and live out our lives, nothing here is new or novel. It might not even be that exciting, but it is sufficient. What that means is that the places where we struggle in these ways, it's not because we are deficient in resources, even if we're deficient in using them. They're ready and available, and they're right here. And this is such good news, because what Paul presents here is not just a past and future salvation. Right? God defeated the devil, God will one day defeat the devil, and now we just have to live in the tension. Right? 
doesn't mean there's not a war. There's clearly a war. doesn't mean it's not a struggle or a battle. That's all true. Sometimes we need to remind, be reminded that the victory was already won and that one day it will be complete. That's good. But what we are given here is sufficient to stand. Let me turn to just one last place, which gives a very different angle on these things. If you were to read the book of Jude, you would also find spiritual warfare. Okay? In fact, some of the most intense language about false teaching and false prophets is given to us in the book of Jude, uh, including wandering stars for whom it is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Just to give you a taste. But as he paints this picture of how dangerous and volatile this community is, when he gets to the end, he says, what we are to do is this. He says, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. But to protect yourself from this, you don't have to study the cults. You don't have to go get a degree. You need to focus on the truth. You need to keep yourself in the love of God. You need to know God personally and deeply. And then listen to what he says in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with joy. That's talking about Jesus. Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling. The gospel is great enough to overcome deception condemnation and temptation it's ready and available so let's familiarize ourselves with the armor yes more importantly let's put it to work let's pray Father, your word says in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our wisdom and our justification and our sanctification. Here we can add another item to that list that Jesus is our victory. Pray, Lord, that you would help us again to, to live with eyes open to the spiritual reality, to recognize when our circumstances or our hearts or our struggling are greater than the sum of its parts and there's something working in the background. Something, uh, something maneuvering and empowering and, and sometimes overpowering. And I pray, Lord, that we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't flee anywhere but to the same resources you've given us in Christ. That we would flee to the truth, to the reality of our salvation, to the peace and arrest available in Jesus Christ the powerful sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to the shield of faith that won't stop the darts but will extinguish their flames, to prayer. God, one of the ways that we can understand our own salvation was there was a point where we recognized we were drowning and we cried out for help. I pray, God, that we would get used to crying out for help today and tomorrow. We thank you for these truths. We know, Lord, there's contours and areas we don't understand. There's places that make us nervous. 
There's things that we just can't rightly see or identify. We entrust that all to you, but we ask, God, that you would make us a fully equipped church, that we would know how to do spiritual warfare and that we would be able to see where we are taking ground and where your victory is being proclaimed and where the kingdom is present in power. We thank you, Lord, that you haven't just called us to this for the excitement of a tour. But Lord, you've called us to this because you are committed to this world, to everything being put beneath the feet of Jesus, and to the reconciling of all things to God the Father in Christ, the setting right of every wrong. We just pray, Lord, that you would do that in our hearts, and that you would use us to do that in our world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.